This morning we come to the second lesson in the book of Second Peter. We'll be looking at uh, verses 12 to 21 in chapter 1. So I invite you to turn there. According to a 2022 Gallup poll, so fairly recent, a declining proportion of the overall American population, now at 20%, believes the Bible is literally true word for word. Now, by that, they don't mean that every, everything is actual, liter, you know, literal in the sense that there can't be hyperbole and, and other types of uh, communication in Scripture, but does it really mean what it says? That's what they mean. When they talk about that, only 20% of Americans believe that. That is half of what it was 40 years ago. So in 40 years, there's been a 50% decline in people believing that the Bible is literally true. 49% believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but not everything in it should be taken literally. In other words, they can rationalize away what it says. 29% say the Bible is an ancient book of fables and history. So almost 30% compared to 20% who believe that it's, it's the literal word of God. As the Gallup poll uh, summarizes, belief in a literal Bible is declining, part of a general pattern of declining religiosity among the adult American population. We certainly have seen this trend in liberal denominations along with the corresponding results, right, of what happens when you discount and disobey the clear teachings of the Bible. Like I know some of you, I have had my own journey in having to leave a church because it was moving away from totally believing in the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. How many of you have had that, that challenge where you've had to leave a church because they had a declining view of Scripture? Sadly, across many churches, there are other trends that discount the Bible, like shorter and more entertaining sermons, shallow Bible studies led by incapable teachers, poor theology and an interpretation of scripture and so on. Martin Luther, the great reformer, famously said, you recall, in his trial in 1521 when he was asked to recant of his writings and teachings against the Roman Catholic Church's violation of scripture. He said, quote, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I therefore cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. Well, like Luther, we need to stand solely on the word of God. I've entitled the lesson today, Know and Have Confidence in the Scriptures. And I've, I've listed out the theme for this passage as the following. Believers must base their faith and practice solely on the truth and authority of Scripture. And they should continually be taught and reminded to know, embrace, and live by the truths of Scripture. So that's the theme that we're going to be looking at. 
By the way, I have handouts on the table. I know some people really like to, to write out, fill in the blanks. Uh, it just helps you engage. For some of you, that's a distraction. So you decide what, is, what works best for you, okay? So let's begin chapter 1, verse 12. And it's going, we're going to begin with, with the fact in this section, verses 12 to 15, to know and remember the truth of God's word and initially looking at the point we should know and be established in God's word look at verse 12 therefore I will always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you he uses the word therefore and that's a, a transition word it's He's saying, in light of what Peter has shared about the greatness of our salvation, our path of sanctification and assurance. So it's the things that Eric covered last week in the preceding verses. Therefore, and then he says, he acknowledges that the intended audience already knows these things. He said, even though you already know them and you have been established in the truth, these are not new converts. They, they have been learning the truth. And again, these things refers to what's covered in the preceding verses in this chapter. They knew and embraced the fundamentals of Christ and the gospel and as well as their need to diligently pursue godly living. These things... Are, that Peter is writing about is also part of apostolic teaching and part of in, inspired scripture. This is what Peter is teaching as an apostle. Believers should know and be established in God's word. Let me ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing in really knowing and being established in God's word? I know many of us here uh, that is a a passionate pursuit that's why you come to countryside you don't come to countryside to hear a 50-minute sermon from tom to be entertained right you don't then come to faith builders or one of the other classes to hear yet another 45 50-minute lesson to be entertained you know i am not entertaining <laughs> and but we what you love is is to hear God's word and to hear it explained and you think about internalizing it and applying it. That's why you're here. So, so thankful that, that you are on that journey. Next, we see that we should, be regu we should be regularly stirred up by by way of reminder of God's word. Go back to the beginning of verse 12. Therefore, I will be always be ready to remind you of these things, Peter says. Then verse 13, I consider it right, I consider it proper as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Paul used this expression also in his writings. It's, so it's a common thing that apostles knew they needed to remind people of the truth. Peter has great motivation to constantly cause the believers both the believers then whom he was writing to as well as believers now to think again and again about the truths of these things. 
And why do we need to be reminded? It's because we forget. We get distracted in life. We, we have, we've sensed the effect of our own flesh. Our own flesh steers our minds in ways that we shouldn't go. The effects of sin of other people. Uh, just the ungodly world system. We need to be reminded. That is what good pastors, good teachers and shepherds do. And then he, he says to stir you up by way of reminder. To stir up is to, that word means to wake up, to arouse, to excite. In fact, it's the same word that is used to describe the sea, uh, the sea being stirred up before Jesus, Jesus walked on it. So imagine the sea, a lot of energy and motion. That's the idea of, of being stirred up. The idea is to make sure one is spiritually alert and on duty. Sin, the flesh, the evil world system impacts how we, we think and our, our minds and our hearts must constantly be stirred up by God's word to think and act rightly. And then in verses 14 and 15, we see where Peter was diligent to capture and remind believers of the truth by writing Scripture. Verse 14. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter knew that he was about to die. By this time, when he's writing this letter, he is in his 70s. Okay, he... He says his death is imminent. That word means not only soon, but it's going to happen quickly. So it, the word means swiftly. And Peter knew he was going to be executed. Peter has served the Lord now as an apostle for some three decades after the Lord's uh, death and resurrection. And he, he now knows he's about to die. And when he says, as also our Lord has made clear to me, he may be referring to a recent revelation that the Lord has given him personally, that's possible as an apostle, or he may simply be referring to what the Lord told him back um, before the, the Lord ascended back in John 21. But regardless, Peter knows that he is about to die and he, he has this passionate desire to remind people and to, to capture the truth in writing this letter and writing scripture. He wanted to stir them up with key spiritual truths. And according to church tradition, Peter was executed by Nero, the Roman emperor, in A.D. probably 67 or 68. Nero actually died of suicide in, I think, June of 68. So it would have been before that and he died by crucifixion and he again according to tradition he asked to be crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the same way as his Lord look at verse 15 Peter continues and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind He's talking about all the things that, that Peter wrote. How would he do this? Even after he dies, he's talking about, 
I want to remind you of things. Well, he's teaching and writing scripture as an apostle. He wrote 1 Peter, which we've already uh, studied. He's now writing the book of 2 Peter to capture these truths and reminders. And these are being added to his gospel account recorded in the gospel of Mark, uh, along with, with Mark. Now, some see the gospel of Mark particularly in view here that this is a statement where Peter is looking to, to finish up that gospel account while others see the gospel of Mark as having already been completed by this time. The apostles knew what they were doing and it's important to remember this. You know, the apostles knew that they had been given, they had been especially selected by the Lord and gifted to lay the foundation of the church as is mentioned in Ephesians 2.20 having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. cornerstone. So the apostles knew that, that they were recipients of divine revelation. They had been told that the Holy Spirit would bring to mind all that had happened with, in the life of the Lord and his ministry. They would be able to record that. And they were giving new revelation to write scripture. And so Peter knew that through what he's doing, through his ministry, he would continue to remind believers of these things, the truths of Scripture. Peter pursued having a godly legacy that would endure after he passed away. Folks, life is short. Those of us who are older, we know. We can look back and bore the decades, click off, when you're young, you don't think about that. You think life is forever. But life is short. There are some in this room, you have decades left to live. But there are others uh, in this room who have much less time. We need to be diligent in fulfilling the calling and mission that the Lord has given to each of us. The time to serve the Lord is now. It's not some point in the distant future and like Peter we need to be diligent in doing that don't waste your remaining time on this earth in pursuing things that don't matter things that have no eternal value your passion for serving the cause of Christ and his church should grow over time what is the legacy that you will leave behind when people think about your life important to to consider that. In this next section, verses 16 to 18, it talks about having confidence in the, the apostles who were unique eyewitnesses of divine revelation. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying the apostles didn't follow clever man-made myths. That's what that word tales means, myths, in teaching about Christ's second coming. And the, the verses that follow is going to talk more about clearly the, the transfiguration which relates to Christ's second coming. Now notice in verse 16, he, Peter has been saying, I, I. He's been in the first person singular. 
But he now changes to the first person plural, signaling his identification with the apostles. So that's now the context that he's speaking from. He's appealing to the unique testimony and authority that has been given to the apostles. And that is in stark contrast to who? The false prophets that he's about to address in chapter 2 in a big way. Uh, the apostles walked and were taught by Christ. Their testimony is true. And they are authorized by Christ himself. Again, to lay that foundation of the church. Now, Peter doesn't explicitly list out these cleverly devised tales. But we can derive that uh, from what the points that Peter makes and what he's writing. And clearly the teaching about uh, the, the return of Christ was an important part of that. It says these tales were cleverly devised. That means they were sophisticated. They were invented with much cleverness. And folks, that's the way the devil is, isn't he? He's crafty. He's been like that ever since the Garden of Eden. He's sneaky. And that's the way he... He works to deceive people. It's clear from the letter, again, that the tales included false teaching about the return of Christ. Now here, some like John Calvin see in this verse where it says to make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin sees that as referring to the first coming of Christ. You know, his first advent to earth, his earthly ministry and gospel. MacArthur points out that that word coming in the New Testament, it always refers to the second coming of Christ, not the first. The return of Christ, it says, will be characterized by power. And that was, that was prefigured in the transfiguration. So you, you remember uh, that from the study of the gospel accounts. And we're going to look at that coming up. Look at continuing in verse 16. It says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The apostles, specifically Peter, James, and John, they were eyewitnesses of the transfiguration and recipients of the divine revelation of Jesus' power and majesty. Now, the transfiguration is recorded, it's captured in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel accounts. And he's saying here that that we saw a glimpse of the power and majesty of Christ coming into his kingdom. Let's just review quickly the, the account of the transfiguration from Matthew. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light verse 5 while he was still speaking a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold a voice out of the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him so here we see a preview of the majesty of Christ in his glorified state as he will be when he returns again 
that was a key element of the transfiguration is to see Christ in his glory, in his power, exactly the way he will be when he returns to earth again and reigns in the millennial kingdom. Peter says, I saw this with my own eyes. The apostles were eyewitnesses. The apostles not only saw, but they heard. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This was an amazing display and declaration as to the power, majesty, honor, and glory of Christ. So as the point says here, they they heard Christ receive honor and glory from God the Father. Christ was audibly declared to be the Son of God by a voice from heaven coming from God the Father. Folks, if Jesus wasn't these things that are that's reflected in the transfiguration and what Peter says here, he can't save us. But he was these things. Do you believe in this Jesus? This powerful uh, Savior who will return? He is the only way of salvation. He is, he is the only one that can save a Savior like this who can save us from our sins and give us eternal life. Now think about it, folks. When the disciples, think about all that they saw in the earthly ministry of Jesus. They had seen, to some degree, the glory and the power of Christ in, in all of his miracles and certainly after his resurrection. Why do you think Peter picked the transfiguration to highlight here? He, he could have picked other examples to display to make the point that they were eyewitnesses of, the, of Christ's honor and, and power. Well, John Calvin writes, he chose one memorable example out of many. That's a true, true statement. But also because it relates to some of the false teaching that was going on. And which Peter will address in chapter 3. I mean, chapter 3 is most, almost all about the return of, of Christ. So that was clearly the motivation for picking that as the example to make to lay that foundational point that the apostles were eyewitnesses. They have authority in what they're saying and what they're writing. So the point of this section, in addition to highlighting the power, the honor, the glory of Christ, is to clearly establish the unique authority the unique position and trustworthiness of the apostles including peter and this is in stark contrast to the lack of authority the lack of trustworthiness of the false apostles and their teaching and think about it that's something peter is forcefully about to address in just four more verses when we get to chapter two he launches in uh, very forcefully talking about the false apostles and false teachers. So again, he's laying the foundation of the, the trustworthiness of 
the apostles. In verses 19 to 21, this is the last section that we'll look at. We'll spend some more time here. But the point here is to have confidence in the certainty, the completeness, the origin, and the authority of the Scriptures. And the first part of verse 19 makes the point, the apostles confidently saw the prophetic word as firm, certain, and trustworthy. Look at verse 19. So we have, we possess, the prophetic word made more sure. Now this verse has had a number of interpretations. What does it mean? So we have the prophetic word made more sure. There's a lot of, a lot of debate, a lot of questions about this. Well, first of all, let me make the point. If you look in your New American Standard, what's unique about the word made? It's in italics, which means it's not in the original Greek. It's implied. The interpreters inserted that uh, in, in a sense to make, based on how they were interpreting that verse. But the word made is not there. Literally, this, the first part of verse 19 says, we have more sure the prophetic word. So some, some key questions. Who is we? Is we the apostles? Is we talking about all believers? What is more sure? More sure than what? The prophetic word is more sure than what? And what does that mean? What is the prophetic word? Is, does Peter have in mind here all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and his second coming? Is that talking about all of the Old Testament? Or is it talking about all of Scripture, including Scripture that was being written uh, and starting to circulate even, even in the New Testament through the apostles? and those closely associated with them. Well, that word more sure, th- in the Greek, it's, a com- it's in a comparative sense. I'm told I'm not a Greek expert at all. Um, but, but looking, reading those who do know Greek, it's in a comparative form. That's why that adjective, or is that an adverb, more, I don't remember. I went to public school in Louisiana, so I... <laughs> grammar... Grammar is not my forte. Um, it, that's funny. You know, I, I joke with people. I, it wasn't until sometime in college that I learned that Chester Drawers was chest of drawers. Uh, uh, Chester. And so, you know, I just, again, language is not a strong suit. But anyway, the prophetic word, sorry, more sure. So it's in a comparative form. That's why it has more. And that same word, the the exact same Greek word, is used elsewhere. It's translated guaranteed, firmly rooted, firmly grounded, firm, steadfast. So that word, it, it means more secure, more established, more firm, more certain. There's several common 
or a couple of common views that uh, of interpretation I'll go over and make some points. And I, sorry, this may be a little more technical than some of you have an interest in. Others of you will really like this level of, of kind of analysis. And it, it's something that I uh, spent a lot of time on. So it was important for me to work through it. And I thought I would share that. So the, the first common view of interpreting this is the experience of the transfiguration provided confirmation of Old Testament prophecy, making the prophecies of the Old Testament even more sure for all believers. I mean, is that kind of reasonable? He, he just talked about the transfiguration, and he's saying that that experience now gives us even more confidence that all the other prophecies will take place. Well, commentator Jameson writes, the fulfillment of prophecy so far in Christ's history makes us the surer of what is yet to be fulfilled, his consummated glory. The Bible knowledge commentary writes, God's voice on the mountain made the word of the prophets more certain because the transfiguration pictured the fulfillment of their words. So they're, they're advocating this particular view. That's a possible interpretation. Uh, as things become fulfilled and you see evidence, it gives you more confidence that everything else will take place. But to me, <coughs> it seems this particular view seems driven by the assumed action that something made the prophetic word more sure. And, but yet, again, that word made is not in the original. So, uh, again, it's possible, but uh, I see that particular issue. Let's look at a second, the second common view, and that is that Scripture is more sure than the experiences of anyone, even Peter's experience in witnessing the transfiguration. Maybe you've heard that view if you have a study Bible, you see that um, articulated there, perhaps. It's, it's actually in both the ESV study Bible and MacArthur study Bible. MacArthur writes in his study Bible, Peter is ranking scripture over experience. The prophetic word, in other words, scripture, is more complete, more permanent, and more authoritative than the experience of anyone. Well, what do you think? That's a possible interpretation. There are a number highly respected commentators uh, whom I uh, revere that hold that position. So it's certainly possible. But let me just point out a couple of concerns or main concern that I have on this. And that is the transfiguration is part of the authentic record of divine revelation involving God the Father, Christ, and the Apostles. To me, it's problematic to lessen in any way the surety and the certainty of it, of what happened. What happened on the in the transfiguration was, I mean, it is part of the inspired biblical record. It was authenticated. Christ was there. God the Father was there. The apostles were there. And I, I have uh, an issue with in any way saying the fuller sense of Scripture is more certain, more sure than the transfiguration, that particular experience. Uh, 
I get the fact that we say Scripture is more sure than the experience of any person that now. I mean, I uh, back, gosh, this was probably over 10 years ago, I was hosting a home fellowship uh, or teaching a home fellowship, and there were, there were some visitors there that showed up, brand new to Countryside. And they said there, they said, well, you know, I, I hear God speaking to me audibly. I, I know his voice. Well, that that was kind of a game changer in the <laughs> in the flow of the conversation at Countryside. Uh, and yeah, these people claimed experiences that were direct, you know, a mystical experience. That's clearly uh, we don't believe that scripture is clear. The record of the divine revelation is it's complete and so the case we can clearly make that case to say we don't believe in those uh, experiences today but folks we're talking about an experience involving Christ himself and the apostles authenticated by God the Father and so uh, even as John Calvin says it appears at first sight strange that the word of the prophet should be said to be more sure or firmer than the voice which came from the holy mouth of God himself. For the authority of God's word is the same from the beginning. So you can kind of see the tension here uh, in this particular interpretation. Regardless of whether the point is made here or not, the word of God certainly makes it clear that it is absolutely trustworthy. It's authoritative over any supposed experience that a person today may claim. Let me mention al an alternative view. And I, I, it is not a common view, but it's one that I really wrestled with uh, as I studied this. I'm surprised it's not more common, but I feel like I'm out on a limb, which is a scary place to be. But I just mention it in terms of how I wrestled with this particular uh, verse to make sense of it. And the view is, Scripture is more certain, it's more sure than the cleverly devised tales of the false prophets. What is the point that Peter is, is talking about? He, he just mentioned cleverly devised tales back in verse 16. And in in two more verses or after two more verses he launches into this attack on the false prophets and teachers so this statement is it's sandwiched in between talking about all that's going on with these false prophets and teachers the text is building also on a broader view of the importance divine inspiration and the authority of all scripture Peter is, is broadening out his view, which you will see in the verses coming up, talking about the divine inspiration and authority of all of Scripture, including what's being written through the apostles. So we will see that in verses 20 and 21 following. Think about the purpose of the letter that's captured. We'll look at this when we reach verse, verses two and 1 and 2 in chapter 3 where Peter says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you 
in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So you see this appeal to the authority of, of the apostles. And then also we'll see in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, where Peter equates Paul's writing with scripture. So any reference to the prophetic word that Peter makes can also have a broader view of all that's being done in the New Testament period in terms of uh, writing scripture. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Peter writes, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So Peter here calls Paul's writings and letters scripture. The apostles knew what they were doing. They knew they were writing scripture. They had been given that charge and, and Peter knows that. So regardless of the view taken here in this particular verse, the outcome is the same. The apostles confidently saw the prophetic word as firm, as certain, and as trustworthy. They had complete confidence in it. And with them, we possess these same truths in God's word and, and should have this same confidence. Let's look at the rest of verse 19. Let me just read from the, the beginning. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Peter reminds us to pay attention to God's word. To those who belong to Christ, God's word is like a lamp shining in a dark place. Folks, it if you've known Christ for any period of time, is that not true? I mean, God's word lights your heart up. It lights your path. And, and you cherish it. You increasingly cherish it as you go through life. I think of Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God has always been like that. From the, from the very beginning, whatever proceeds from the mouth of God in terms of divine revelation to man, it lights up our world. And for those who are obedient and following Christ, it, it provides the boundaries of life and it, it molds our hearts and directs the thoughts of our mind. Is God's word the lamp and light that you follow in the journey of life? We are to allow the word of God to light our path. It says until the day dawns. Now that would be a reference to the return of Christ. It says when the morning star will arise in your hearts. The morning star is a reference to Christ. It says he will arise in your hearts. 
MacArthur points out the reference to hearts indicates his return will also transform believers. It's going to do something on the inside. It's going to transform believers into perfect reflections of the truth and righteousness of Christ and make them into the image of his glory. Folks, can't you? We can't wait for that moment when we will be transformed and the, the fleshly sin will be gone. The capacity to ever sin again will be gone. What an amazing time that that will be. When Jesus returns, we will not just have the word of God, we, we will also have the living word with us. Now, what follows in verses 20 and 21, two very foundational verses that concern the doctrine of the divine origin and inspiration of Scripture. And first of all, we see that Scripture did not originate from within man or by his will. Very important point to understand. Look at verse 20. But know this first of all, and that means foremost. Know this foremost of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, if you're like me, there was a time when, when you say the word prophecy, I would always think that's talking about something in the future, some future prediction. That's prophecy. That's not true. The word prophecy is also, it's used of any declaration from God given through a prophet that relates to anything in the past, the present, or the future. So when you see the prophetic word, don't think future. It's just divine revelation. That's the prophetic word. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, some wrongly think that this verse says that only a few select people can interpret Scripture. Wow, this had been used for centuries, you know, in the Roman Catholic Church, where the Word of God should not be in the hands of the common people. It's too much for them. Keep it in, you know, Latin or whatever, some language they can't understand. And who will interpret the scripture? The priest and the pope. And you do what they say. That was the model. Okay, and, so, and they used this verse. No scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Or some people interpreted it that scripture should not be interpreted according to one's personal liking. Well, that's certainly true. You, you can't make Scripture say what you want it to say. Some people approach Scripture that way, right? They, they know what they want it to say, and so they will interpret it according to that filter that they put on, not according to the original intent of the author, according to interpret it, interpreting it according to good hermeneutics. But notice it says that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And again, if you have the New American Standard, matter is in italics, which means it's not in the, in the original. No prophecy is of one's own interpretation. And that word is, it, it just means it came into being. No prophecy of Scripture came into being 
by one's own interpretation. That word interpretation is a little bit misleading. It means the unraveling of, the unloosening of. The Greek indicates that it's referring to the, to the revelation, to the origin of Scripture, not the interpretation of it. It's simply saying that divine revelation and the Word of God does not originate within the prophet. It doesn't have human origin. That's the point. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Look at verse 21, which makes it super clear. For no prophecy was ever made, ever produced by an act of human will. And this is so important in terms of understanding that the writings of Scripture do not originate with men. There's a lot of people that get hung up thinking, well, gee, Scripture was written by men. This is just the opinions of men. But that is not the testimony of Scripture. Contrary to false prophets, uh, this is how they were reflected on in Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you, referring to false prophets. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision, what? Of their own imagination, not from the mouth of God. Mouth of the Lord. Folks, nothing in this book here is the product of the imagination of men. True divine revelation originates from God. It flows through the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles or those closely associated with them in the New Testament. And then in the latter part of verse 21, we see that Scripture came from men moved by the Holy Spirit and who spoke from God. But, in other words, on the con- contrary to the idea of prophecy being produced by the human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Such an important verse. Moved here, that word means to be carried along. Uh, it was used by Luke several times in the book of Acts to describe a ship being carried along by the wind. So imagine a a ship with its sails either up or down, no rudder. Where is it going? It's going where the wind blows it. That's the word, to be moved, carried along by the Holy Spirit. MacArthur writes, for Peter, it it was as if the writers of Scripture raised their spiritual sails and allowed the Spirit to fill them with his powerful breath of revelation as they penned its divine words. And you think of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, right? The idea of, of God breathed. All scripture is inspired. What does that word inspired mean? God breathed. And just you see how it goes with talking about being moved along by the Holy Spirit. It's as if it's the breath of God. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Peter's establishing the truthfulness, the authority 
of the inspired word of God, which he says originates from God, versus the teaching of the false prophets, which originates within themselves. That was true in Peter's day, and it's still true in our day as well. There are teachings that come from very capable communicators that are from their own imaginations. It is not from the word of God. That's a mark of false teachers. The measure of whether a teaching is true or false is whether it aligns to this book. The Bible alone is our spiritual authority and source of truth. And I I wanted to just remind you of our countryside doctrinal statement, which just uh, highlights the teaching that we see in these verses as well as the, the fullness of of that in scripture our doctrinal statement says we believe and teach that God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship the Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing they composed and recorded God's word to man without error in the whole or in the part We believe and teach that the Bible constitutes the only necessary and infallible rule of faith and practice and is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. It's a great summary of uh, our doctrinal position of, of Scripture and what Scripture says about itself. Well, in closing, some reflections, some questions to think about. Let me ask, do you have total confidence and trust in the truthfulness and the authority of the Bible? I think most people here are already committed to this doctrinal, uh, this foundational doctrine. Again, it's a hallmark of countryside. What is one of our slogans? A high view of Scripture. If as a believer... You are waffling on this in any way. You must accept Scripture's own testimony of itself. This is, this is the Word of God to us, and there is none other. If you want to know what God wants to say to you, read the Bible. And as Justin Peters says, if you want God to audibly speak to you, read it out loud. That's such a great quote. If you are not a believer, you need to realize that this is God's message to you. It's the only true and and authorized message to you. It tells of your need for a Savior, just like Tom talked about in in the um, service we just went to, that you are a sinner that you need a Savior to save you from the penalty of your sin, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only Savior who can save you, who can pay for the punishment of your sins, and that you must repent of your sins, put your faith and trust in Christ, and come to follow Him. And then the Scripture tells you how to live as a believer, how to live in a way that honors and pleases Him. Secondly, do you test what you hear and believe by the truth of Scripture. 
Don't be taken away by the clever schemes of, of Satan, which comes through, can come through very talented people in, uh, in being persuasive. Be like, you remember the noble Bereans. What did they do? They tested what they heard against the scriptures. Third, are you diligent in developing a deeper knowledge of God's word and in engaging in activities that regularly remind you of its truths? Remember Peter's message? You need to know the truth of God's word. You need to constantly be reminded. And the fact that you're here speaks hopefully to your desire to continue to want to know and be reminded and guided by God's word. You do this by going to church regularly, going to uh, Bible studies, daily Bible reading, daily studies, and, and other related things that, and, and Christian music, things that remind you of the truths of God's word. Fourth, does your life reflect a growing obedience to God's word? It's not just enough to come listen, not just enough to be hearers of the word, but you must also be what? doers you have to obey commit yourself to those truths the key to sanctification is found in learning the truths of scripture and growing in trusting and obeying them and the beautiful thing is god has granted to us everything we need what for life and that idea is eternal life the fullness of that eternal life god desires for us both beginning now and going into the future forever, but life and godliness. We have everything we need right here. Finally, what area of your life needs correction in order to submit to the truths and the commands of Scripture? Is there any area where, where you're being a rebel, whether anyone else knows about it or not, and you, you need to confess and submit and get your life and your mind and your heart uh, under the obedience and submission to Christ and his word. You need to do that. John Wycliffe was called the morning star of the Reformation. He lived in the 14th century, about 150 years before Martin Luther. And uh, just a great story. For those of you who were around in the Reformation theater when we did that and and faith builders where we met and did a little movie, you know, about the life of different reformers. He was one of them. He has this great quote. And you can see how he was truly the morning star of the Reformation because in, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, you can just imagine that whole thing controlling the state and, and everyone's way of thinking. Listen to his commitment to God's word. He says, the true Christian was intended by Christ to prove all things by the word of God. All churches, all ministers, all teaching, all preaching, all doctrines, all sermons, all writings, all opinions, all practices. These are his marching orders. Prove all by the word of God. Measure all by the measure of the Bible. Compare all with the standard of the Bible. Weigh all in the balances of the Bible. Examine all by the light of the Bible. 
test all in the crucible of the Bible. That which cannot abide the fire of the Bible, reject, refuse, repudiate, and cast away. This is the flag which he nailed to the mast. May it never be lowered. Amazing commitment to the word of God. May that be our hearts as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the inspired and errant word of God that you have given us that allows us to have everything we need for life and godliness through Christ, through the gospel, through your written revelation. Lord, we're so thankful how in your, your divine plan and your providence, you raised up people who gave their life, who spilled their own blood in order that we might have this book in our own language. We're so grateful, Lord, for all that you have done to give us scripture. May, may we be like those whom Peter wrote who know the truth. And may we desire earnestly to constantly be reminded of its truth, but not only to know it in our minds, but to embrace it in, the f in fullness in our hearts so that we might have lives that are honoring and obedient to you and that give you glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.